The word of the Lord from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool in our gospel reading. And be sure to know that the problem here isn't the riches. The problem is covetousness. Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We have two examples in the gospel reading. One is the rich man in the parable, and we want to make sure that we get his plight right. He is very rich. His land has produced plentifully, and his harvest is too big for his barns. As he puzzles what to do, he decides that the plan is to tear down the barns and build larger ones. If you ask me, that seems to be a pretty decent business plan. So far, it's no more sinful than investing your savings for retirement. We should ask that if Jesus is warning against covetousness, what exactly does the rich man covet? He's not coveting his neighbor's house. He's not coveting his neighbor's wife or servants or animals. There's no neighbor in the parable. And we don't hear the man say that he desires to take from others to add to his wealth. He has what he has through his own land. So what exactly does he covet? From the parable, it appears that he covets a soul at peace. He's restless inside despite his success. There's a void he can't fill, an itch that defies scratching. So now he hopes his soul will find rest with relaxation, eating, drinking, and merriment provided by his wealth. He should know better because you can only relax, eat, drink, and be merry so much, no matter how much wealth you have. In other words, if the soul is satisfied by food and drink, then the rich man already has enough. But it hasn't worked out that way. Despite all of his wealth, his soul is still restless, 
and his answer is to find happiness in more. But that's apples and oranges, trying to fix the problem with the wrong solution. That's what unbelief does. It makes clear that you have this huge void inside that needs to be filled for you to be happy, but then it urges you to fill the void with all the wrong things. And that is how you create false gods. You rely on things, things that can't bring rest to your soul, to bring rest to your soul. That's the end of the rich man. God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? All the crops, all the wealth, all the food and drink, all the merriment and relaxation aren't enough to cure the soul because they were the wrong medication in the first place. The other example we have in our gospel reading is the someone in the crowd who says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And this is all we know about the situation. It may be totally straightforward. The parents have died. The sons are supposed to split the inheritance 50-50. But the executor brother has succumbed to greed and decided to keep it all. It may be that the one asking Jesus is like the prodigal son, who has squandered so much the rest belongs to his brother, but he still wants more anyway. It may be that he's wealthy and wants more at the expense of his brother, or just wants more. It may be that he's poor and he's been relying on this piece of the estate to stabilize things as he plans for the future. We don't know the situation. We do know that you learn a lot about a family when the will gets read. We don't know this man's situation and we can't say, and that's just fine because covetousness is not a sin of only one class of people. It's a universal sin among sinners. Everybody wants more. And that's why covetousness is a major player in the Ten Commandments. The ninth is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, which means that you should fear and love God so that you do not scheme to get your neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. The tenth is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor which means that you should fear and love God so that you do not entice or force away your neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. God commands contentment, to be thankful for what he provides and to stop wanting more. How much better the world would be if everyone was content? But covetousness is a raging sin. And if you covet your neighbor's goods or house or his wife or servants or animals, then you're fostering jealousy, greed, and envy within yourself. And these are sins that will eat away until there is nothing of you left inside. If you act upon this covetousness, whether you succeed or fail... You create hostility with your neighbor as you try to gain by making them lose. 
This unleashes all sorts of anger and trouble, not to mention a damning pride if you succeed. And even if you totally succeed, even if you gain all that your neighbor has, and he's in no position to do anything about it, all that you've gained will do nothing to fill the void that you're so desperately trying to fill. In fact, you've only made it worse. We should add that this isn't just about filling the void with money or goods or people. Another coveted idol of the day is leisure. We hear incessantly that stress is a killer, that we need to find more time to relax and get away. Maybe we should shorten the work week, abolish Monday mornings and Friday afternoons. Maybe it's better to skip church on Sundays and go camp in the middle of nowhere on a regular basis because that's when you feel the knots come out of your shoulders and gut. I bring this up especially because it can be a confusion of categories. Getting away from it all? That's good for the mind and the body, but that's not the same as refreshing the soul. I'll be the first to admit that there is nothing better for my emotional and mental health than standing in a trout stream for a few days and letting the cares of the world wash downstream. But I also know that if I use that to fill my soul, I will stop being a Christian and I will become a pagan who worships nature instead. That's why we have Wednesday night services, by the way, so that you need not deprive your soul if you've missed on Sunday. Another great idol is always the self. People don't feel comfortable in their own skin. They're missing something, they sense it, they see the need for a change. And that contributes to a lot of midlife crises, sexual sins, hours with a therapist, plastic surgery, other kinds of surgery too. Something's missing, and people try to find rest for their souls by changing their locations, or their minds, or their bodies. All of this shows that sinners are on the wrong track. They think that if they can get their minds and bodies right, then their souls will be fine and the void will be filled. But it's actually the opposite. Get your soul right and that void filled, and the body and mind will follow. They'll be better here, and they'll be perfect for eternity. What's the solution? Well... God commands contentment, so be content. It's the law. You know the problem with that plan, though. You can't do it. Coveting and discontent are like impatience, anger, and lust. They're happening before you even know it. You don't have to wake up in the morning and say, Hmm, today I need to work harder at coveting. It's already how you think. So while you should be content, you're not. And that is pretty foolish and unavoidable. This, by the way, is why Jesus seems so short with the someone in the crowd, the one who wants him as rabbi to interpret the law and give a verdict about the inheritance to his brother. The brother might well be wrong and the someone in the crowd might be entitled but none of that is going to help his soul, which is what Jesus has come in the flesh to do. To render a verdict according to the law, issue a command, and send the man on his way? 
That's to leave him with a damaged soul, but foolishly believing that he has what he needs. Here's the thing. The void that really haunts is the absence of righteousness. Your soul is naked and ashamed before God. Adam and Eve used fig leaves to cover their shame. You might try to use wealth, a house, leisure, surgery, or your neighbor's wife, workers, or animals. But none of those things bring rest to the soul, because none of those things take your sin away. Meanwhile, the covetous pursuit of things only increases the void and adds to the burden of sin. Ultimately, that void that you feel is a terrifying awareness that the wages of sin, the outcome of that lack of righteousness, is death. You can see then why God calls the rich man in the parable a fool, because he believes a barn full of grain heals the soul. If it did, he wouldn't die. But he does. Back to Christ then, because he comes so that you might have rest for your soul. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Son of God lives a life without covetousness. Now, you might scoff at that and say, well, why would he covet? He's the Son of God and everything is His. But look at your incarnate Savior. He has given up all things to be your Redeemer. Do you forget that when He fasts in the wilderness, the devil tempts Him to covet bread? Do you think that as He sees the mansions of the wealthy while He has nowhere to lay His head, that the evil one does not tempt Him to covet their comfortable beds? Do you think that when Jesus bears your sins to the cross, the devil does not tempt him to covet the easy way out and dump your sins back on you? Oh, Jesus knows the temptation to covet. I've no doubt that the evil one hounds him with it on his way to the cross. But he doesn't do it. Not once does he commit this sin that you're already doing before you even know. That's astounding. What's even more astounding is this. He willingly goes to the cross and becomes the fool who suffers for your foolishness. Crucified, he bears the void of your sin, the absence of righteousness, and the Father fills that with his wrath. And now, risen again, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Covetousness only adds to the burden. Jesus has rest for your souls. Having borne your lack of righteousness on the cross, he robes you in his own righteousness in baptism so that you stand before God clothed and holy and unashamed. As you give in and covet again, he continues to mend and cleanse that garment by his holy word. And he gathers and feeds you the food and drink that is good for your soul, a holy cure, his body and blood. 
It's a sad thing that we rarely cover the means of grace as we do worldly things. Sin still clings. But the Lord, He continues to be gracious and merciful. Someday, your soul will be required of you. Even though you rejoice in the gifts God has given you for this body and life, do not be foolish enough to believe that they restore the soul. Instead, rejoice that in Jesus, you have more than you need for life and salvation. For he covets that you live so much that he has died and he is risen to make it so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.